As part of their enduring commitment to justice, equity, and expression, the Open Society Foundations are proud to sponsor Many Lumens. You're listening to Many Lumens, where we talk about and find meaning in the intersections of art, social change, and popular culture. I'm your host, Maori Carmel Holmes. In this episode, I sat down with my immensely talented colleague and friend, Meg Only. Meg is a curator and writer whose work focuses on the complexities of race and the production of space. Currently, she is the co-curator of the forthcoming 2024 Whitney Biennial with Chrissy Isles. Previously, Meg served as the director and curator of the now-shuttered The Underground Museum in Los Angeles and was the Andrea B. Laporte Associate Curator at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Philadelphia. Her exhibitions include Speech Acts, Colored People Time, Jessica Vaughn, Our Primary Focus is to Be Successful, and she recently co-curated the retrospective Ulysses Jenkins Without Your Interpretation with Aaron Christavale. She is the recipient of multiple awards, including the Creative Capital Warhol Foundation Arts Writers Grant, the Transformation Award from the Leeway Foundation, and the inaugural Figure Skating Prize. Besides her brilliant work in contemporary art, what I admire most about Meg is her laser focus on curating thoughtful and dynamic exhibitions that reflect her own experiences as a queer Black woman, the lack of which has fueled her passion. I had the pleasure of being in person with Meg for our conversation when I asked her about growing up in Gardena, California. Hi, Meg. Hi, Maori. Welcome to Many Lumens. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you're originally from Gardena, the South Bay area. And can you talk about what life was like growing up in Southern California? Oh, my God. I mean... I mean, I'm back in L.A., which has been very odd after, like, almost 20 years. But I grew up in Gardena, uh, which is kind of a predominantly or used to be predominantly a Japanese neighborhood. And so I grew up going to Japanese school when I was a kid. I did not retain any Japanese. Um, <laughs> but I would say, like, you know, my my block in general was, like, really California multicultural. Mm-hmm. And I think having worked on the Ulysses Jenkins retrospective and worked with an artist who was born and raised in California and Los Angeles in the 1940s, it was really interesting to sort of see just like very similar racial makeups. You know, my neighborhood, although it was predominantly Japanese, it was also very black, very Latinx, Mm -hmm. um, and also a Vietnamese population, a little bit coming back from, from the war. But I also grew up in LA in the 90s. So it was a murder capital. You know, the uprisings occurred. I went to school in Brentwood when Nicole Simpson was murdered. So I felt like there was a lot of these like really large cultural touchstones that happened when I was in LA. And I think, you know, one thing that's come up with Chrissy Isles and I have kind of talked about during the biennial is also what it's meant to like grow up in a city that was really violent at the time and Mm -hmm. like to now be an adult. And I think for me, I I think I just look back at LA at that time and then I moved to Chicago and then I lived in Philadelphia. You know, there's also a certain amount of like comfort that you end up having within urban spaces. But I think 
LA in the 90s was like such a very specific cultural space. Mm -hmm. And if you're not familiar with where Gardena is, it's right on the edge of Compton. And so Mm -hmm. it's Compton on one side, it's Carson, it's Torrance. And then you kind of head into, you know, maybe about 20 minutes away, you have really affluent beach communities. Mm -hmm. And so it's also really close to San Pedro, which is like a huge port town as well. And so specific, but at the same time having this like kind of uh, sprawl. And so when I watch things like Snowfall and things like that, I recognize, you know, a lot of the places um, within it. Yeah. I grew up in Los Angeles also, a little bit older than you. And remember, it's not lies. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, I remember in the 80s, I was raised in West Hollywood is where my mother lived, which was relatively non-eventful and would go, I was babysat in South Central. And sometimes I have to spend the night at my babysitter's house and just sort of remembering hearing gunshots and the ghetto birds and the helicopters and all of that. But every single day, you know, and then when we moved to Atlanta in the early 90s, the soundscape was very different. It's like sort of being used to that kind of noise. Oh, for sure. I mean, I remember being, uh, you know, shortly after undergrad, I was with my girlfriend at the time and she was from Ohio and we heard a gunshot in Oregon and I rolled out of the bed and she sat up and I was just like, it was one of those very Mm -hmm. stark moments of like where we had grown up and the soundscapes that you're, you became accustomed to. And I Mm -hmm. think also just the surveillance and policing Mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. You know, when I was working at the underground museum, you'd be sitting in the garden with, you know, anyone coming through Mm -hmm. and you would just have helicopters over all the time. And so to me, it's like, and, and emphasis is not that L.A. is a particularly violent place over others. Right. There is some of that. But at the same time, it's like just a huge presence of the LAPD mm-hmm. and that type of surveillance of black and brown communities. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what young Meg wanted to do? What did you want to be? A lesbian. I was like a very butch child. (laughs) I hope uh, you have that image of me and my little cowboy getup as a kid. I mean, I wanted to be an artist. I loved Mm -hmm. art. I also loved George O'Keefe. So Mm -hmm. I think like the tie between art and lesbianism was very strong early on. (laughs) Yeah, I was like a very queer child. Mm -hmm. And I often say that I grew up in a seemingly very queer household. Mm -hmm. Um, Like we went to pride parades. We went to uh, West Hollywood for Halloween. A lot of my grandmother's friends, I was raised by my grandmother and mother, and a lot of her friends were queer. And so for me, you know, I was kind of surrounded by a lot of a lot of queer people mm-hmm. and people identified as, at the time, cross-dressers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I also grew up in a very white household at the same time. And so I think a very, like, white, queer upbringing is, like, one of the things that I think a lot about my childhood. And then like the other aspect of that was also growing up in, uh, it was very important for my family that we grew up Catholic. Uh, You sent you to a black church, right? We did go to a black Catholic church (laughs) in South Central. And so St. Bridget's was like a really big part of like how I experienced black culture as a child. And I think also just, it's kind of weird to think about, you know, Catholic aesthetics are very um, strong. Mm -hmm. And I think at the same time, growing up in a a Catholic gospel church, there was a lot of sort of um, Pentecostal and Baptist kind of inflections that were happening at the time. Both my parents wanted us to be in the choir. And so my brother and I joined and we're both tone deaf. And so it was incredibly (laughs) embarrassing to have white parents and also be the tone deaf kids in this choir. (laughs) 
Were you taken to museums as a young person? Is that how you thought about, like, is that how you discovered Georgia O'Keeffe and decided you want to be an artist or were those separate things? Yeah, no, I mean, like, I had a second grade teacher, Susie Newman, and she was very into art. But I think, I mean, my very, very earliest memories were I think my mom had enrolled me in like an art class. Mm. I went to museums. I mean, I remember going to the Getty, LACMA, MOCA, the Hammer. You know, I remember lots of those exhibitions that I saw as a kid. Mm -hmm. And I think some of it is being bust as a child. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I was part of a magnet school. And so they brought us to some of those things. I had a very, very active parent. My mom was young when she had me and she was present at every school function, took us to everything, and my grandmother. And so I distinctly remember being at LACMA with my grandmother looking at a Jeff Koons piece. I remember seeing Kara Walker's work with my mom at some point. There's times that I look back now and I'm like, you know, I was going to MoCA when Ann Goldstein was curating there, you know, just really fantastic curators that you had a chance to sort of like learn from. I wanted to be an artist to begin with. And I went to an all-girls Catholic school and then I got kicked out of it. And And why did you get kicked out? I just was a really bad student. I just didn't care about school. But I went to the same school that Meghan Markle went to Mm -hmm. and like Tyra Banks and like, you know, it's like a prep school. And so you have to like uh, excel or else they kick you out because you bring down their their grades and averages. But I ended up going to a public school, high school, my last couple of years. And when I was there, it actually had a, a print department. And so I got very into printmaking, bookmaking, you know, all the things I still do now Mm -hmm. is really a big part of my life. And so I worked in print shops for years. This is, you know, in the early aughts. And soon after that was like a really huge Andy Warhol show at MoCA. And I remember getting very invested in like pop art and screen printing. But I also realize now that Maori knows this. I, I work very closely with Studio Ella, um, who's an amazing design group, and Steven Serato. And I have recently figured out that we were actually in like really similar networks in the early 2000s. Mm. I was working at a gallery six space. He was working with Shepard Ferry and we had like done some collaborations with each other. And so mm-hmm. Stephen and I actually probably had these like interactions when we were like, you know, 19, 20, something like that. And oh, so, amazing. yeah, I always feel very embarrassed to say I, I got into art through street art, but like <laughs> I'd been looking, I'm like, especially with the art I love now, I'm like, oh my God. But um yeah, I loved art from a very, very, very early age. And I think I was also just like a very visual person. I struggled a lot with reading. Mm-hmm. And so I often say that, you know, I didn't start reading for myself, like by myself. So I was like in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, and my grandmother read to me. Um, I had a lot of learning disabilities when I was growing up. And um, for me, I think I just had a very... Uh, not enhanced, but like, I think for me, visual pleasure was really important to me. Yeah. You and your brother, Pat, are really, really close um, in age and affect. And you're both queer leaders in your field. You're into tattoos. Were you always close? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. My brother, I would say that I I think my brother probably identifies more as trans than queer these Mm. days. But Yeah. I mean, I love my brother. I think if you know me, you know that I have like an absolute love of my baby brother. He's 19 months younger than me. Us together as kids, we were just inseparable. Like we hung out in high school in a friend group together. We were very rough and tumble kids together. We would like break toys and like, just like, I don't mean like this, like 
chaos, but like I would say, you know, we're we're both fire signs and there is a lot of energy between us. But I also think my brother and I are 19 months apart. So my grandmother and her sister Joan were 18 months apart. And her sister passed away when my grandmother was 13. And so it was always, I would say, you know, Pat's and my love for each other is actively cultivated. We work on our love. We talk to each other. You know, it's very rare that I don't talk to my brother in a day. But it's work, you know, it's work being in relationship with someone. And my grandmother really set early on for us that our love and our bond for each other was like absolutely unbreakable. There was nothing more special than that and that no one should ever come between you. So I think there's ways in which we were, you know, family-wise sort of forced together. But I also think in retrospect and through lots of therapy, you know, we're the two black people in our family, black, queer, trans. I think there's a way in which like... And incredibly successful, both of you. Thank you. I think there's a way in which we... Of course, we're going to be like always, you know, I'm like gripping my fists and shaking them like so close, like yeah. so deep. Like my brother is just like, I always say like, my brother taught me how to love someone. You mm-hmm. know, it's like... I get weepy when I talk about it. Like, (laughs) he's just my favorite person. And I think to have someone in your life that you know will, like, do anything for you Mm -hmm. and go anywhere. Like, anywhere I was in the world, I could call my brother and he'd be there for me. My brother is just one of the most outstanding people I know in my life. I won't take that personally. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for sharing. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the decision to go to college and study art and how your family responded to that. And were they encouraging? Was that just a choice you made on your own? I know for a lot of working class families, at least in mine and many of my peers, our parents didn't know a lot about college. So we were like on our own to figure it out. And so I don't know what that was like for you. Oh, totally. I mean, I think my family was shocked. I wanted to go to college. So maybe you know this about me, but most people do not. But a lot of my teen life was oriented around the band garbage i did not (laughs) i loved garbage and i have a a garbage tattoo i saw them a bunch of times and i'm so psyched shirley manson follows me on instagram and when she likes my posts i still get giddy i'm still just like oh my god i love this band and so i really thought i was gonna be a roadie although i liked art i never saw this as like a future for myself and i often say like i don't know i think there's a way in which i found myself through curating and like my, not my career, but like my practice as a a cultural producer. And so once I started thinking about college, SAIC was like the number one, you know, you go to these things and you're like, it's a number one ranked school. I think it was the only school I applied to. And also you didn't have to turn in, or maybe it was like very low SAT scores. And I had not (laughs) even taken the SAT. So I, I didn't even take, you didn't have to do the math portion. I sat there and I didn't do it. I just was like, I'm not doing this. And so I think that sold me. Obviously not, as you mentioned before, not having a family who had, you know, gone through the process of my uncle had gone to college, but like that was about it. I took on debt that I shouldn't have taken on. Mm -hmm. I'm very thankful for my education at SAIC in certain ways. I think that education can be a lot more rigorous than what it is, but I really found out who I was intellectually. Mm -hmm. And I also found myself, I think the most important aspect of that is I found myself in a community of artists. And so I often cite that, you know, my first year I was in the dorms with Martine Sims on the same floor as me. And Martine and I became friends. Um, The amount of people who have come through that space is 
even just curatorially, like Karen Archie, who's at the Shedlick, um, Allison Glenn was there, Karen Patterson went to SAIC. Mm. Um, uh, I mean, there's Rachel Adams. There's so many people who have kind of gone through that space. Jamie Lee Polson, who's now the head of, of the Fry. Like, there's so many people that you can just keep naming that have gone through that school. And so for me, it just immersed me within an artist community sort of immediately, um, which has really shaped my practice. I think I am very artist-centered and artist at least trying to put artist ideas forward. Mm -hmm. And I think going to that school kind of allowed me to do that. What made the transition from wanting to be an artist? Um, did something happen that made you say, maybe I'm no good at this? Or did you fall in love with curating and decide you wanted to pursue that path instead? Yeah, there's there's two things. One, when you go to school with people like Martine Sims, you realize you suck. Like, there's... <laughs> Like, it, it was just like, you can ask anyone from an early age, you knew Martine was going to be great. Mm -hmm. And I think seeing that, I just was like, I don't have that. Like, mm -hmm. I don't, I, making art is incredibly hard. I mean, to take conceptual ideas and form them into an object, if you're an object-based artist, or if you're making film, like, the amount of respect and deference I have for artists is, is very, very high because it's very easy to think you could do something, mm -hmm. but you didn't. And I think there's a place for me that I'm just like, wow, that is a very complicated place to work. That being said, Kelly Jones changed my life. And so Kelly Jones is now dig this. Um, this is about 2012, 2013. I see that show. And I think three to four years later, I, I'm a curator. I like have a curatorial gig. And now dig this just, I think there's a three shows I often cite as like the aha moment, but mm -hmm. Now Dig This was the very first one that I was just like... Was it because it was LA-based artist or like what was the... I think I walked into that show and I remember thinking I spent, you know, I think I was like $50,000 in debt from SAIC. Mm -hmm. And I was like, how do I not know about these artists? How did I spend mm -hmm. all this money and not know about, you know, I knew who some of the artists were. But like, I didn't know who Ulysses Jenkins was. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if I knew Sanganagudi at the time. Like, I knew David Hammonds, and that was about it. And so I think for me, the curator's role in facilitating between an audience and artists, but I also think uncovering and teaching. I think, you know, I mentioned earlier struggling with, with reading, and I think for me, understanding that there are spatial practices, that there are all of these other practices that we can have to make sense of the things in our life. And I think for me, working curatorially and creating exhibitions, working within space, thinking about theory in relationship to space, curating is incredibly psychological. All of those things to me just made me realize that there was this whole other skill set that I had not been taught to use. And I think seeing Now Dig This, I remember walking away being like, Oh, that was very important. And I didn't know if I liked everything, but it was something that just really stuck with me. And then I'd say the other show that just had such a huge impact on me was Helen Molesworth's This Will Have Been. And I saw that exhibition, I think at the time I had been a fellow. So I, I, I pretty much saw Kelly's show. I was um, starting to write about art and I applied for an art writer's grant through the Warhol Foundation for a blog I used to have called Black Visual Archive. I did not receive the award the first year, but I got a mentorship with Susan Snodgrass, who's a Chicago-based art critic and, and professor. And Susan and I just got 
to work. Like we started writing short form texts. She would take me to curatorial walkthroughs. And I remember seeing Helen Molesworth give a tour of this will have been. And I often say like Helen and I are friends now. And, and, you know, Helen was just like, you are the queer person in the room. And like, there was this way in which she spoke to me mm-hmm. and understanding, you know, the two curators I'm talking about are like some of the best curators ever. You know, it's like to, to have Can a I chance. also add that they're both Tauruses and I love that that's who changed your life. Taurus has changed my life. This is true. <laughs> this is very true. Yeah, Tauruses for sure. <laughs> I would say uh, the Taurus women in my life have really made a major impact on me and including you, Mary. But I think seeing both of those shows, I, w- watching both of them, when you think about both of those exhibitions, you understand the way that they could produce very complex ideas through space. These are both more historical surveys in certain ways. But I think for me, I was really interested in scale, contextualization, you know, when you understand the 1980s, like when you approach the 1980s in art, it's sort of seen as a really vapid time, you know, it's not, but like the brief art history blurb you might have is very like Jeff Koons, like it's about consumerism and it's much more complex than that. And so I think for me, seeing Helen, um, Helen Curie, but also Helen is just an amazing storyteller. Mm Mm-hmm. And so for me, having a chance to see a person who has such an effortless comfort with art and who can just very casually tell you a story, and Helen is a great storyteller, I think those things really changed what I wanted to do. And I kind of suddenly, I it was a very like precious secret to me. I did not tell anyone I wanted to be a curator until I got my job at the ICA. No one knew I wanted to be a curator. And I think for me, it was very much like this I never done it before. And so I didn't curate until I came to the IC and I met you. Oh my goodness. I love that. So Speech Axe is Speech Axe was my first show. I never like curated a show. Yeah. And I think for me, I knew that the thing I wanted to do required money. Mm-hmm. I knew very quickly. And I think some of this is also the, I really valued my thoughts and ideas. And so, and not saying at all that people didn't, but I think for me, I knew it required money Mm -hmm. to pay artists to commission work and more than anything i wanted to do publications yeah so this really long history of working in publications and so i knew i wanted to do that and when i got to the ica i pitched actually a very small show um i pitched a little project space show and anthony elms the chief curator at the time said you know think bigger i think you should think bigger and i thought bigger that show couldn't happen because it was already it was a solo show and it was already happening and one day i was sitting at home and i looked at my poetry collection and i just started thinking about all the poetry shows that had opened in the past like year or so um i will definitely say like i'm a student of curatorial practices i'm a person that loves reading about curators i love studying them i love talking to them and so i realized there was this very large gap in thinking about um black experimental po- poetics and like how important poetry is for us. And yet at the same time, you were really seeing it through a very, very white lens that was being presented at the time. And so Speech Acts, you know, Martine was the start of that. And I just figured, well, if Martine's in, I'm going to get other people to do it. So I called Martine (laughs) and uh, she said yes. And I think it was the first time when I made that show, it was the first time I could I could actually work within space. But I think the success of that show, before the show even opens, it gets blurbed in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And I think that triggered just so much imposter syndrome for me. And so I just was like, well, 
it's the artist that made this show. It's the architecture. It was all these other things. It wasn't me. And a lot of the artists, Camila Janan Rashid is just an amazing artist. And she was always like, you, you know, you brought this together. You yeah. did this. Tiana Nikki is incredibly supportive and was like, you know, this isn't just us. This is also you. And I think for me, uh, my anxiety really like played out, which moved me then into my next show and like mm. kind of creating some structures for myself to yeah. like prove to myself in certain ways that I was like, capable as a curator and so i love speech acts it's like my firstborn um and i i say that as a firstborn <laughs> and i think for me um it also just produced a lot of anxiety for me at the same time yeah um thank you for also sharing that i feel like a lot of people for some reason over the last couple of years will say to me like do you get anxiety and i'm like did you wake up you know what i mean i'm just like so many of us deal with it and I think people don't understand that like a lot of people are going through it and how you sort of manage it. It, it looks different, but I like... did with shrooms the entire time of that show. <laughs> I microdosed shrooms the entire time during yeah. the install. Yeah. I mean, you know this cause I would talk about it at work and I remember our, our, uh, chief preparator came up to me and was like, I've never seen a curator be so calm. <laughs> and I was like, shrooms, buddy. That has kept me <laughs> microdosing shrooms three times a week, kept me really calm. But I think yeah. there's success, you know, attention. It's always that like yeah. tension between, and I think you and I have talked about this of like, you know, you are highly successful. You know, you have built an empire and look at you. You're just giving me this this look you're an incredibly successful person but also the challenges that come from that and the mm -hmm. self-doubt the anxiety mm -hmm. the want for respect and attention but also the like oh my god leave me alone mm -hmm. i need space and yeah. i often describe myself if you google a <laughs> possum in a hole hissing is often how i describe myself in my relationship <laughs> to accolades and attention is like i want people to pay attention to me and respect me but i'm also like oh like just yeah. get away i i need to do my own thing yeah it's hard and a lot of times people don't teach you like how to navigate that and i think it becomes compounded when you're also have multiple identity markers that are desirable mm -hmm. for your field and what it means for you to like represent those things yeah i mean me being at the ica as director of public engagement was also a shift for me, like in terms of my own practice, yeah. because I'd always wanted to work in museums. And I interned at a couple in undergrad, but was really turned off by the pay <laughs> and the culture. And so bad. But I kept like wanting to be in the spaces. And so even in doing different projects and other jobs, I like always found myself back, at least like making projects or, you know, collaborations with these institutions, which led to that job. And I think you showing up six months later, and I really do think you inspired me so much to to think about what was possible even for me. And it's just incredible to me that you were just like, I didn't realize how much you were starting out until just now. Like, I just assumed you had done like smaller things. So that's amazing. Well, I think one of the things that's really beautiful about you and I and our friendship is like, we're both, it feels like we're having such a serious conversation when I'm like, you and I are both actually usually teasing each other the entire time. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we showed up at this institution under the leadership of Amy Sadow, you know, a woman of color. And there are very few women of color uh, within directorial positions mm -hmm. uh, in this country. And I, I would even say just like generally within um, Western culture. 
in museums and immediately you and I both have this energy of like, let's just fucking do this. Yeah. There's like this, like, I remember talking to Kate Craxon, uh, who is the associate curator at the time when I first got there. And Kate was amazing, like took me under her wing. And Kate always would tease that, like, you know, I was always polite, but I often didn't necessarily like wait for yeah. someone to ask me for something. I just would ask. I would say, hey, can I do this? And one of the amazing things that we did for SpeechX is we did 14 programs for that show, mm-hmm. which I can never imagine doing <laughs> ever again. Like, oh my God, so many programs. But like our reading group, the performances, like there was just a way in which you and I had so much gusto to like come in and like do this together. And mm-hmm. like, what did it mean to collaborate? And I think for me, it really spoiled me in working in museums because like, I just had such equal thought partner to like jump in. And you also like immersed me immediately into Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anyone else at the ICA has ever had someone say, hey, I'm going to introduce you to you know, all of these people within Philly, like coming back here, I love this city so much. I Mm. love, love, love Philadelphia. And I think a lot of that is because you really immediately introduced me to so many contacts and so many people and so many cultural workers and the black arts dinners we were doing and Mm -hmm. hosting people. And I think there was just this real energy that it's kind of hard to describe a certain spaces and you felt that at ICA the other night during during the opening and it's like that is the energy that sort of happens when you know you are in the room and I get to help (laughs) I think there's a way in which like you know we come together it's like really really beautiful and it's what I see from Black Star like being at Black Star I feel really similarly it's like these spaces are incredibly alienating. And I often say, like, I am not comfortable in museums. And I, you know, if I'm not comfortable in museums, like, what does that mean when I'm the curator? And you have been able to create these spaces that I feel so comfortable in, like, talking about anxiety. You know, I hate public speaking. Uh, no, Most people don't know that. No one would know because you show up in all your sadness. I know. I'm just so you know? good. It's, it's bad. <laughs> I think one of the things is I really stress often, and I remember having a conversation with Martine Sims about what it meant to be on stage and to look out and only see white faces. Mm. And I I think so much about Black Star and like how comfortable I am in that space Mm -hmm. and like what it means to be in that audience and that it's so rare. It is very, very, very rare. And so I just want to like also highlight that of like the things that you've built. And it's pretty amazing. Thank you. For those who, who can't see, Mayori's blushing. <laughs> I'm wearing blush. <laughs> You're listening to Many Lumens. We'll be back after a short break. Black Star Project celebrates and uplifts Black, Brown, and Indigenous artists. We produce the annual Black Star Film Festival, Many Lumens, Scene, and other projects creating the spaces and resources artists need to thrive. Learn more and support our work at blackstarfest.org. You're listening to Many Lumens, and now back to our interview with Meg Only. I want to talk a little bit about the shows overall. Um, You just mentioned Speech Acts and what led to it. But I want you to talk a little bit about um, what I have seen in your shows 
is the artist in you and also your love of artist, but also your love of architecture. And I also feel like the way that you treat crews and like your respect for them is like so evident and it's like so much love. And I feel like your shows then are better because of that love. And I just want to know if you could talk about arranging objects in space and what you, how you approach setting up the show. Like once the idea you've gotten the funding, now we're going to press go and it's install. Like, what is that process like? I appreciate you saying that. I feel like the crew are such a huge part of, of making an exhibition together. I think maybe stepping back from like, there's so much that happens between the first idea to like when you get to install. But I would say the one thing that feels like a very true through line from the start to the very end is I really live in a place of comfort of not knowing. Mm. And I think for me, it is one of like my real strengths is that I don't mind being wrong and I'm wrong often. Mm-hmm. And yes, yes, you are. No, I'm, just <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think for me, it's like, it's interesting working on the Whitney Biennial right now. And it, cause it's such a wild, you have like 11 months to put a show together. Mm-hmm. Like it is, it is so fast. And I feel like there's very few people understand like the pace that it takes to like make a show like this. And it's very easy to critique, but like, At this point, I'm just like, how did I ever critique these shows not really understanding, like, what it takes to make them? But you have to have this comfort in your skill um, and those around you and trust. And so for me, um, I've often made shows often saying that I approach them with really open arms in a lot of ways. Like, Color People Time was not called Color People Time. It was not about Color People Time until way later into the process. Um, it was called Of Black Beings, and Robert Cheney, bless his heart, <laughs> called it Black Beans over and over and over again. And I thought I was going to lose my mind hearing a show called Black Beans for like <laughs> a year. And I had those sub chapters built, you know, mm-hmm. like it was a show clearly about colored people time, but I did not see that. And it yeah. wasn't until I talked to Cameron Rollin and Carolyn Lazard that I realized that. And so for me, I think there's a way of making exhibitions that are very um, like art historically arg- like argumentative and mm-hmm. it, it comes in as argument driven. And I know some people feel like I make argument driven shows. I don't feel that way. Maybe they do come out in that way um, in the end, but I think I'm working much more associatively. And so I'm not there to like argue a point. I'm there to arrange objects and works and create a conversation. And I think part of the maybe like uh, generosity you're speaking to or what happens is, you know, the crew, the people you work with, the, you know, you as a collaborator, uh, my thought partners, you know, all of these people, I ask for a lot of opinions. Like during install, like it is, I ask everyone for their opinion. Um, you know, I had a chance of working with Emily and Scott on this Carolyn Lazard show and what they did with the lighting, you know, yeah, it was three days of lighting that show, yeah. you know, and it really makes or breaks the show. And so for me, it's also, you might be asking someone to do a repetitive action over and over and over again. And we have to have a very clear understanding of what the labor we're asking people to do and honor that that labor is what makes my shows look really good. And so I want people to feel really good because they're doing things that I'm not doing. Like I can't have my shows without other people. Mm -hmm. And I think that hopefully comes across aesthetically. You know, I would say like, I care about beauty, which is like, 
such a controversial thing to say. And, you know, I don't want to go into the depths of like the complications of beauty, but like, I love an elegant hang. I love the psychological space of the museum. How do you move people through it? How do you draw someone close? What is the choreography? I think there are a lot of things that, um, are also just like instinctually, I'm very lucky to have that skill set that I can, you know, I can think very rigorously and conceptually, but I would say also maybe like 40, 50% of my hangs in a show. Um, if I'm doing a group show, which is more dominant of the curator to make that decision over like individual artists, a lot of that is instinctual. And so I feel very thankful that I have that. And a lot of it is because I've spent a lot of time looking. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say more than anything, I've spent a lot more time in my career looking at exhibitions and that's more important to me than reading about them. Sort of in this line of discussion, something that you just talked about in your artist talk with Carolyn Lazard this past Saturday, and it's something I've heard you talk about in the past. It's actually something that my mother loves that you do. It's like you're in the institution and you're like, this shit sucks, you know? Oh, yeah. But in a constructive way, right? You've also committed to working in museums. How can museums change are they supposed to change or are we just supposed to disrupt them? I think oftentimes I talk about being very interested in the mess of the museum. And for me, you know, you asked me kind of earlier, like, what does it mean to arrange objects in space? And I think my entire career is going to be consumed with this idea of what has it meant for us historically to have been considered objects and for me to arrange objects in space. It's a very odd. Us as black people. As black people, Mm -hmm. but also as women. I mean, I think there's lots of ways that you Mm -hmm. can sort of like, I think first and foremost as black people, but I think there's lots of people who have been deemed objects throughout time. Mm -hmm. And... I think for me, it's it's a very interesting career uh, to be able to think through those challenges and what uh, surrounds the politic of objectivity and that history within space. And so for me, um, I often say I'm really disinterested in changing museums. I think there is a place where – and I don't mean that in a way that is at all um, disregarding all of the amazing work that – Um, organizers, cultural producers, um, administrators, artists have done. Like, it is very interesting to me. Like, I like the pig pen. I like the mess. I love the mess. And I love friction. I think for me, that kind of tension and friction that can occur is really fruitful for my practice. I'm currently at a place in my life, and I think a lot of this, you know, I can safely say I think being part of watching the Underground Museum close and being part of that, I think I'm now a year out from that. And I can say that that process, watching that happen, how could that not change me as a person? Mm -hmm. And it has profoundly changed me as a person. Being outside of the Underground Museum, like not as its co-director, I love that space. There is no other space like the Underground Museum. I think for me, doing art for Philadelphia, which was something you we haven't even talked about, but like what that meant collaboratively to raise over $120,000 for local organizers, I think people look at me and my identity markers as like a visibly queer Black person. It's the assumption that I'm here to change the museum, not I'm not interested in investing that time in every institution. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in making my work and doing my shows and hopefully supporting the people that I really want to support. But I think for me, 
I don't have that in me. And I also really feel um, resentful that there would be an expectation that I would do that anymore. And I think you and I did a lot of work and there's a lot of people who have done work at the ICA in Philadelphia. I think giving to a space is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, my work is enough. Mm-hmm. I don't want to give anymore. I don't really want to. And I honestly think white people need to step the fuck up and do that work. Like doing a show is enough work. Mm-hmm. Like that is just looking at the audience that came on Friday, like that is work. That is changing aspects of who comes to the museum. Yeah. But it's like for me to to think that is that is enough. Like what what we did, what you do, what I do, that is enough. Mm-hmm. And I think for me it's just a I know you get a bit of uh, not resentment or hostility or, or heat from me, but I think there's a place where I just feel very differently at the place I am in my life right now. And I think for me, I'm just kind of like, I really want to make shows. I really want to make books like museums need to change, but I don't think that's the labor of like marginalized people necessarily to do. And yeah. if people want to take on that work, I honor that. I support that. I think it's incredible for people to do that. Mm-hmm. I just think we can work in concert together and that I can't do multiple things at the same time. Yeah, that's totally fair. You spoke earlier about seeing Now Dig This, um, curated by Dr. Kelly Jones, being an aha moment for you. And I heard a young museum professional say a couple days ago that seeing speech acts changed their trajectory. And I imagine that's true for many people. Are there other intellectuals that continue to, you know, impact your work now, just sort of like, you know, even a decade later? Or are there people that you would recommend that like listeners to this, you know, think about if they're interested in curation? Oh, my God. I mean, I think there's so many people. And I think it's one of those things that's like those aha moments can also occur for things that are in the past. So Mm -hmm. I think like studying past curators, like I think of Marsha Tucker, I've like studied Marsha Tucker shows and you can have those kind of aha moments and looking back at exhibitions. I think uh, T. Lax's um, recent jam show, I think that was an aha moment for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there is lots of people making work that allow you to shift your perspective. And it's one of the reasons I believe in curating. I think Cecilia's recent Venice Biennale, when you see that install, that is a person who can work at a scale. I remember talking to lots of curators about that show. And there's lots of way in which the Arsenale is set up very similar to the Highline and understanding a person who has a command of space. Mm-hmm. Um Again, thinking about the psychology of something. And this is obviously, this is a privilege to be able to travel around the world and see exhibitions and, and talk about them. But I think there is, you know, lots of people doing fantastic things. So I also just want to say, like, what it also means to be taken care of in an institution mm-hmm. is like a full other thing. And what it means to support people while they're doing their work and navigating and working on projects and thinking about someone like Adrian Edwards. Like, Adrian to me has just been like so fantastic in the work that they've done and the care that they've given to me, I feel really, really thankful. And also just to say that like all of these people are women and like the majority of women who have like greatly affected the field, supported me, supported others. Like um, it does feel like there's this like, I don't want to say like huge gender disparity, but like it's interesting to sort of see like who's in those types of roles of support. Yeah. 
this might be controversial to ask, so I will. Um, but do you believe anyone can be a curator? Becoming a curator has a lot of limitations, and I think it has been structurally created to keep people out from curating. Mm-hmm. I think the pay is often deplorable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the pay is really, really bad. And so certain people can afford. Right. To the do assumption that. is you're married to a hedge fund manager. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And no diss to my friends who are. Right. Uh, Mine either. I mean, I'm looking for one. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's an assumption that you are of a certain class mm-hmm. um, in order to do that. And I will say that I made less money curating than I did running a print shop pre-master's degree. Yeah. You know, it's like, but I did it also because I just, I, I have this just like drive to be able to, to do it. Um, do I think everyone can curate? I don't know. It's not something I've really thought about before. I think uh, Bell Hooks talks about um, that the black home is the first place in which we like curate to see ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so I think in that realm, I do think everyone has a place to curate. And what does it mean to um, prioritize visuality within the spaces that we're in? Mm -hmm. Um, And I I say visuality because I I don't want to get solely locked into this idea of representation and the figure. Um, I guess, yeah, in certain ways, I think everyone should try it. I think we lack being taught how to work spatially. Mm. Um, It's really lax within our education system. It's one of those things that for me, having learning disabilities, I really could not figure out, like, I thought for a very long time that I was dumb. You know, I think for me, I was always like, oh, I'm not as smart as my brother, or I don't understand things, or oh, I failed and retook this class again. Like for me, I really struggled. And I remember one of the first things that when my family saw speech accent, I have a very supportive family, like my aunt and uncle are out, my grandmother came out, my brother would like everyone showed up. And I think in the end, I remember my mom being like, did we ever expect this? Like, did we expect, like, it was unexpected because I had a very hard time processing the things I was learning. And so for me, it's like, I actually think more people should, whether it's curating or making art, I think more people should be able to work spatially and figure out how objects relate in space, whether it's through interior architecture, design, things like that. And so I don't know if the sense of focusing on curating necessarily, but I do think that like processing ideas through space feels very important to me because I think there's lots of people who maybe just haven't figured out that is a way that they can learn. Mm -hmm. We've talked a lot about how passionate and serious you are about curation and museums and the art world. And I know that you're an avid reader, but I'm just curious, what kind of popular culture do you turn to when you want to turn your brain off? I consume a lot of popular culture. (laughs) First off, when uh, the UM closed, I think I watched 14 seasons of uh, Naked and Afraid. (laughs) (laughs) I travel all the time right now. And if you're with me and my girlfriend knows this, I love watching just basic TV. Like, I love turning it on and just being like, what is there? (laughs) That's how I got into Naked and Afraid was with my brother we were drunk and we were in Vegas and I was like, this show is like, speaking of white tomfoolery, that is some of the dumbest shit ever. Like naked on an island. I mean, obviously it's fake, but I'm like, that is hell for me. Not wearing clothes outdoors. I'm a huge video game fan. I play tons of video games. I love Rockstar games. I love Red Dead Redemption. I think part of my job is being able to talk about 
a breadth of things. Mm -hmm. And that includes like what the new novel is, like what podcasts are. You know, a lot of my job is talking to other people and and relating to them. I don't mean to sound like a psychopath and that I'm like (laughs) studying this, but it makes my job a lot easier being up on pop culture in order to talk to people. But I also get wrecks from people of things to watch. But I would say I love Abbott Elementary. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I love that show so much. I love any show that really enforces this heteronormative idea that your, like, forever person is out there. And so I love Are You the One. I love um, I love any show in which they tell drunk 20-year-olds that their forever person is here and you just have to drink and sleep and find this person. I find that stuff very entertaining. <laughs> what? <laughs> Is there anything you want to try your hand at next? Or is this it? Is this it? God. Um, I think beyond curating, I mean, dog, I want to live. I want to enjoy my life. I want to relax. Like, I don't see myself moving into, like, other things. Like, to me, I feel so fulfilled. Like, ever since I curated SpeechX, I've said I could get hit by a bus and I'd be absolutely happy with my life. Like, I think to me, I found the thing that makes sense for me, which is exhibition making and making books. And I think now I'm just in a place where I think a lot of us are, you know, in the midst of whatever we are in this aspect of the pandemic is I want to enjoy my time with my loved ones. I want to enjoy my downtime. I want to read. Um... I think, you know, I make killer espresso and cappuccinos now. And like, I want to just enjoy. You also got an incredible wine aerator. I <laughs> thank you for that, that <laughs> birthday gift. Uh, I love wine. I love, you know, I love decadence and food and like, I want to enjoy myself. And yeah. I think it's less about like what I want to try in the sense of like career wise or like what I want to try. I think I want to try to like be at peace with who I am and like, really like i feel like very wooey again like i just want to like i'm in love and i want to like you are i want to like love and be in love Mm -hmm. and like wake up and not feel this rush and i I maybe the one thing to say is that you know the one of the things that i i often look you look back at history and you're like why didn't they do this or why like where did this fail and i i think in the very recent history i wonder where we as american workers did not change our work schedules like how did we fail in like not working less and there is this way that the pandemic as horrible as it was having that moment is very weird moment where like what are you going to do when you think you might die or like people around you are dying and i watched lost i watched six seasons of lost Mm -hmm. like it was very odd like i'd already seen the show like i don't know why i returned to that or like what it meant to seek comfort through like entertainment but i wasn't thinking about how once we started getting back into working the hyper productivity just increased Mm -hmm. it was like you could you could work even more and i think we're in this place of um trying to figure out what that hybrid schedule is, which is still to maximize uh, your productivity. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a place for me where I feel a huge reaction to that. And I want to like, I want to do my job really well. I wanted to make my shows and it's not about stretching myself further. And it's also really about enjoying the time that I have with the people that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that has been like a really major reorientation for myself from when you and I first met, it was about, creating a career for myself and now i feel like i have the comfort of like 
enjoying my career, enjoying the things that I do, but also like, I want to have a glass of wine and chill and like sit outside. Yeah. Soft life. I think that's the way to close the show. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. It's now time for our brand new segment, Ask Maori, where you, our audience, is given the chance to ask me, Maori Carmel Holmes, about navigating the film world, artistic practice, traveling, tips and tricks for picking a festival outfit, or anything else you would like to ask. Here's this week's question. Today's question is from Zoe. Zoe asks, what is the role of film and television in fostering hope for a better future? And what films make you hopeful? I mean, I I feel like it's clear for me that film and television, in, in the way that they are attack us on multiple senses, really literally shift how we see the world and how we take in new information and how we process difference. And so they have a really important role in being as representative as possible of what's possible or what actually exists. So I think the future that we want to see, our film and television needs to look like that and needs to represent that. And um, in terms of what films make me hopeful, I'm actually really here for this moment in sitcoms that look like Benetton ads. Like it's kind of corny and it's kind of cheesy that on every single one, there's a non-binary character and there's a South Asian character and there's a character from another country. But then what's also great about that is that that is how our lives actually look. And that is how, um, for people whose lives don't look like that, they're beginning to see that as typical. And that is a such a small thing, but really, really important that I don't even think we can process until we're 10 years into seeing... Um, are like ridiculous sitcoms being intentional about the people in them. And then I think in particular, ones like Ted Lasso that are about like just human goodness and kindness and generosity. Um, I'm really, really exposing my cheesy side, but it's making me hopeful. up with more of Meg Only's work, you can follow her on Instagram at Monastic Trio. This season of Many Lumens is brought to you by Open Society Foundations. It is produced by Black Star Projects in partnership with Row Home Productions. The host and executive producer of Many Lumens is me, Maori Carmel Holmes. This episode was produced by Kayla Lattimore. Associate producers are Arit Reinheimer and Zoe Greggs. Managing producer is Alex Lewis. Executive editor is John Myers. Our music supervisor is David Little Dave Adams. Our theme song was composed by Vijay Mohan and remixed by Little Dave. This episode features music by Dumb High. If you've liked what you've heard so far this season, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. Sending you light and see you next time. You know you wanna come and see. I can feel it in the room when you 
when you came across my radar as far as finance, let's go get set up off, and wish it cost me.